0: You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.
1: They were in a second-story office with a bank of windows overlooking D Street at 5th. In a corner row house close to the federal courts tom peterson big and blonde sat behind his desk wearing an untucked paisley shirt jeans and boots spiro lucas in carhartt was in a hard chair set before the desk peterson was a criminal defense attorney private practice lucas one of his investigators a black moleskin notebook the size of a pocket bible was open in lucas's hand he was scribbling something in the book it's all in the documents I'm going to give you, said Peterson, with growing impatience. You don't need to take notes. I'd rather, said Lucas. I can't tell if you're listening. I'm listening. Where'd they boost the Denali? They took it up in Manor Park on Peabody Street, near the community garden across from the radio towers. Behind the police station? Right in back of 4-D. Pretty bold, said Lucas. How many boys? Two, "'Unfortunately, my client, David Hawkins, was the one behind the wheel. "'You just have him?' "'The other one, Duran Gaskins. "'He's been assigned to PD.' "'Duran,' said Lucas. "'Peterson shrugged, like the paint. "'How'd David get so lucky to score a stud like you?' "'I'm representing his father on another matter,' said Peterson. "'So this is like a favor. "'A $400-an-hour favor.' Lucas's back had begun to stiffen. "'He shifted his weight in his chair.' Give me some details. George Pelicanos is an independent film producer, an
0: essayist, a producer and Emmy-nominated writer for HBO's The Wire and now writing for Treme. He's the author of the best-selling novels set in and around Washington, D.C., including Right as Rain, Hell to Pay, Soul Circus, Hard Revolution, Drama City, The Night Gardener, The Turnaround, and The Way Home. His newest novel is The Cut. Thank you for joining me, George. Thanks, Rick. You know, George... One of the things that we just heard in that reading that really struck me right from up front as a really nice bit of characterization was the fact that your character, uh, Spiro Lucas, insists on taking notes. And I really love that about him because that really speaks to a certain kind of mindset.
1: Yeah, he's very detail-oriented. He likes maps. He likes sort of drawing everything out so he can see it in his mind. And he is a uh, he's a city animal, so the grid of the streets is it's almost like he's looking down on it when he's thinking about it, and he needs to uh he needs to get that mental picture in his head so he draws it and and I
0: think one of the things that interests me is that he needs that effort of putting it to paper himself so that in that moment of writing the note down, drawing the map, that effort that you have to make to do that really seals that image in your mind, and as he later, and this comes up again and again in the book, his inclination to draw maps and do sketches, so that I think you get more out of that when you do that than you do from just a recording or a photograph or any kind of just document, record you can make that doesn't require an effort on the part of your brain.
1: Yeah, well, I found that um, in researching these books, not just this one, but all of my books, because I'm I'm out there on the street doing this stuff. I was I was doing a lot of sketch work in a notebook, and when I didn't do that, I couldn't recall what I had seen. Even if I had been talking into a tape recorder, I couldn't bring the image up in my head. And sometimes when you make sketches, um, for example, in the first chapter of this book, he by sketching the the, the street scene out, he knows or he comes to the conclusion that the police officer who said he saw something couldn't have seen it from the vantage point that he was in. Mm-hmm.
0: That's one of the things I really like about this book and the way you describe the investigative process in this book is really interesting because um, the things that, that Spiro does, he's a man who's engaged to find things and he works for a lawyer and sometimes he works for just clients. but as readers, as we watch him do his job, we it seems like something we could do. He does His steps seem simple and sensible, but it's not until we read these things and we think, wow, that's so great. I could do that. That makes total sense. And it's really, as a reading experience, to see that happen in your mind, it's really pleasurable.
1: Yeah, well, it's logical. Everything mm-hmm. he does is logical. And it's and a lot of times it's just a matter of him sitting in a car on the street for many hours just watching and and observing people coming in and out of houses and and um and and there's nothing there's nothing in it that's that's fantastical you know i mean it's 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 a result of me uh talking to a lot of investigators and in their day to day and seeing what they do what they keep in the trunk of their car and why they have certain tools and um yeah, I mean it's pretty much the, the the life of a of a modern private investigator. Now the reality is that a lot of these guys, um, not the crim not the guys who are doing criminal work, but the traditional PI that you think of when you think of literature, when somebody says um, comes to you and says, you know, I want you to see if my husband's sleeping around, or I need you to find my daughter, or whatever. They they use computers. They never leave their office. But this guy to do this job, he has to be out on the street all the time.
0: And I think one of the things that, um, as readers, that this gets to another thing that you do very well. Uh, There's something that in the science fiction genre is called world building. Mm -hmm. And this is mostly referred to as a book like Frank Herbert's Dune, where he creates a whole world. But I think this is a term that has a lot of utility in all of literature, because any book we encounter shows us a world we've never seen. And one of the things you are absolutely a master at is world building. This world of D.C. that you build for us in this book is fantastic because, I mean, I've never been to D.C., so my only experience of it is like long-distance shots of the monuments Mm -hmm. or people standing on steps, you know, uh, speechifying. So to get your vision of this uh, city, it's a city comprised of a lot of different kinds of neighborhoods crammed together. It's not a very wealthy city. And your vision of this city and the way you build this forest one neighborhood at a time uh, is really incredible.
1: Yeah, I feel like I'm leaving a record, so I'm very deliberately um, obsessive about the details. And the books are almost like roadmaps of Washington. You can be sure that if I say that, you know, the street intersects with that one or there's a blue house on that corner, then there is a blue house on that corner. You know, I want people to... um, to use the books almost as, as maps into Washington. It's an it's an entree into a world. And all reading is for me, all reading is about going someplace you can't go yourself or don't even want to go yourself, but you you can go there through a book. So they're very grounded in 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 realism geographically and otherwise.
0: And I think too that um you as a writer have a real this has a real feel as a social realist book. I mean, as a piece of... And that's what's interesting in, in these books is there's a kind of a, a balance between the crime fiction elements and the just the elements of drama and social realism. I mean, this book is as much a crime novel as Les Miserables... <laughs> And actually, you know, maybe Mr. Alba may be a bit more, but I think that there's a a great similarity in what you're doing, and and you're showing us something that we haven't seen.
1: Um, Well, thank you. I mean, that's not really a question. I mean, I I appreciate it. That's what I'm trying to do.
0: Now, uh, as you uh, write these books, talk about, I mean, do you just drive around kind of, um, when you came up with uh, Spiro, when you met Spiro Lucas, tell us about that moment creating that character for the first time. Because this is a new character for you, and it's a new series, and you have made it very clear this is going to be a series.
1: Yeah, I think it will be. I know I'm going to write one more for sure. Um, and I didn't know it was going to be a series when I when I was writing the book. It was when I came to the end of it that I thought, well, there's there's more to this guy, and this is uh, you know there's there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of seeds here for further growth. Um actually, the book came out of a short story I wrote uh, about uh, his parents, and it was a story about a couple who, a Greek-American couple who adopt a bunch of kids and have this multiracial family, and it was their journey as adoptive parents. And at the end of the story, um, I just had a few lines about a couple of the siblings, um, Leonides or Leo is a public school teacher, and Spiro at the end of the story is a Marine fighting in Fallujah. And then I met some guys who were working as investigators for criminal defense attorneys in Washington, and they were uh, combat veterans of the Middle East and it started to it sort of started to click you know maybe somebody's telling me to write a book about this guy Spiro because it wasn't uncommon and and when I talked to them and I asked them, well, why are you doing this you've been you've been overseas in some pretty uh, harsh conditions and a lot of conflict and um, why come back and do something like this, which is further conflict and These guys told me that when they came back they had lost their sense of purpose in a way because when you're in the, when you're in the military in a war situation, you get up every morning, you know exactly what you 're going to do you have you have your mission you have purpose, and this kind of job cl- most closely approximates that experience. It was an exhilarating experience for them. I know the war is an awful thing, but um you, the, these guys who came back also thought it was it was an exciting thing also and so and they're suited for this kind of work so then it's really saying to me wow you know this is real these guys are doing this job and you've already got the character let's write about it um, how I researched it was really the, the thing that I have in common with this character we're very far apart in age he's a 29 year old guy and um, is that I'm out in the city every day on my bike.
0: Really? So you yeah. ride your bike. He rides his bike too.
1: Yeah. And there's a reason. I, I, you know, when I started when I started writing books twenty years ago, I would go out with all sorts of stuff: notebooks, tape recorders, you know, cameras. Now I take my iPhone with me on my bike, and I've got all my tools in one little, you know, one little square, and. I go out and I um, all the locations in this book were for me finding them on my bike or on foot at night. I take walks at night. And then the, uh, I kayak and there's stuff in here with him kayaking while he's trying to think things out. So, it all the, this book was written really actively while I was doing all these physical things. And then I would come home and I'd have all these photographs and these, you know, I'm sometimes talking into my phone while I'm riding my bike. And so the locations, like the house that he breaks into, I cased that place, I went, it's a real house. I went back in the alley to make sure you could break into this place during the day. And and the fight he has in the parking lot with a guy who's trying to kill him is a parking lot that I walked to one night. It's a, it's a half a block from the 4th District Police Station in, in DC. And when I was there, what struck me was that even though you can see the police station from there, the sight lines from the police station are very um, obstructed. So you could actually, you could kill a guy in that parking lot right in front of the police station almost. And But I had to go up there and make sure that you could.
0: Now, uh, one of the things that makes your books uh, so entertaining and so great is the, the depth of the characters. And, and Spiro is really interesting. And and you do a great job of laying him out. And there's a kind of a, in the same way that you describe what he does as being logical and I, I think you do apply that same kind of logic to the character. And um, you had created him for this other story and then you decided to kind of bring him back. He, I guess you left him off when last you saw him. He was in Fallujah and when you, we pick up he's, he's out. So talk about um, creating, updating him and bringing him back and some of the details of this character, and I love you know the the kind of military stuff that you put in there because that seems really um straight up
1: well i I used it I used the military stuff pretty sparingly in the book mm-hmm. uh, i tried I, I wanted to make sure that when I did use it that it was accurate but uh I didn't want to do any flashbacks to Iraq or anything like that oh no it's very I think I think you know when he, when he's with his friends, especially um his fellow veterans the the character really it's a, it's the only time that he can be himself really or mm-hmm. he feels like he can be himself and that's when you get glimpses of this guy that you don't get in other portions of the book for example when he's around his mom mm-hmm. you know because he would never talk about this stuff around his mother and he is sort of an existential uh hero he's he's defined by his action rather than uh you know he's not a big talker or anything like that and and he doesn't he's not very introspective no no you know he he says um you know, I mean, after he sleeps with a woman, he he drops by some flowers to her house and he says, you know, his internal monologue is, well, I'm not a very clever guy. I know that, you know, I just, I bought some flowers and I threw them on her porch, you know, and so he knows who he is. Um, but the, what's interesting about this guy in this book is what's, I think what's left out is more important than what's said. I think that's true of me. much of the book, too. Yeah. And I think that's interesting. Do
0: you know what's left out? And, and I mean, did you write it and, and read, redact
1: it? Well, no, I'm, but I'm going to get there eventually, I hope. Oh, and, good. Uh, yeah, uh, because there's, there's more to be revealed. Right now, he's, he's trying to figure himself out mm-hmm. in, this, in this world that he's come back to. And I think um, we'll, we'll find out more about him as, uh, in the next book. So
0: do, are we supposed to know what it means when he does this little gesture with the two- one? Because I don't know what that means.
1: Well, he, he and Marquise, know. no, no.
0: <laughs> oh, that's very interesting. I think that's a, I think one of the things that makes the book um, seem so realistic is that there are things that we just see, that you never explain, and we just they just happen, and they seem to have a, a real purpose.
1: I think a lot of that comes from um, my work in in television the last 10 years, specifically uh, The Wire and Treme, working with David Simon and and that group of people. We leave a lot of stuff out. Mm -hmm. And whereas before I got into that, uh, that line of work or working with them, I would sometimes explain things in my book that I now think didn't need to be explained. And we always say when we're in the writer's room, let the let the audience work a little bit. You know what I mean? Give them some credit. They're smart people.
0: Well, that's what makes it pleasurable as a reader is that we get to kind of put this together. <laughs> exactly. And that's That and speaks to the reading experience. Now, one of the things about, I, I love the iPhone <laughs> in this book. I think that's so interesting that it proves to be such a, uh, you know, a, uh, Utili- a Batman utility belt.
1: Absolutely, there's everything in that little phone. You don't need anything else.
0: Um, He's an interesting fellow, and, and one of the things I like about him is that, as you say, he's defined by his actions, and, and this allows you to kind of use dialogue and very sparse actions to drive the plot. And I think that's an interesting way to drive the plot. Dialogue is usually kind of the part the point where in many books where everything just stops. And that's mm-hmm. absolutely not the case in your books.
1: Yeah. Um I I have a love of dialogue, you know, and I think I, I think that's one of those that's one of my strong suits. Um so I mean there's a chapter in here that I really like between him and um between Spiro and this guy, uh Pete Gibson, this former police officer. Oh, I love
0: that. And Pete Gibson better be coming back.
1: <laughs> well yeah, he'll be back. It, it's it's a good voice, and and the whole chapter is them sitting in a bar and and basically Gibson telling him a story. Mm-hmm. But the language is, um, uh, you know, I have my sources, so I I, I have ex police officers really like to talk to me mm-hmm. as opposed to police officer on current <laughs> duty because they can't really talk to me, but they're dying to, you know. But mm-hmm. when they retire, they can they can sit down and talk, and and uh, they've got great stories, and also. It's not just the story itself, of course. It's the, it's the poetry and the language of a of a police officer, and so there's a lot of, um, you know, talking in ten codes and acronyms and all this sort of stuff. And but the aud- you know, the reader, they figure it out.
0: Well, oh, that's one of the fun things uh, about the book is that I, I the pro your prose that that uh, we encounter from the first page on has this um, kind of uh, it's chiseled. It's very um, sparse. It's really muscular. The dialogue is really muscular. Everything in this book just sucks you in. And your world, once you start reading this book, whatever world is around you disappears. And you're in this world with Spiro in DC. And I'm wondering if this prose just flows off the tip of your pen or off the tip of your fingers and your word processor, or if this it requires you to make many gut-wrenching, baby-killing decisions?
1: No, not too many. I, the way I write is um, I write in the morning into the late afternoon, late lunch, and then I put it aside and I go out and I do something physical. I'll ride my bike or shoot buckets or something like that or just to clear my head. And then I come back and I, um, and I rewrite what I've done in the morning at, at night so that I'm ready to go forward the next day. So, And it is a process of just paring it down. And um, I think I've mentioned to you before is that what I don't want to do is draw any attention to me. I don't, I don't want anybody to be reading this book or any of my books and say, uh, you know, the author's saying, look at me, world, I'm a, I'm a crime writer. I want you to get lost in the book and forget that, and forget that somebody wrote it. And so you strip it down, but uh, it's not it's not a matter of taking out big blocks of prose or anything like that. It's just a matter of picking a word out here and there, and what you want to do is get to a rhythm. And a good example of somebody who I liked a lot when I was coming up was uh, David Goodis, the noir writer. He had a real. It was almost like a. Um, it was almost like music when you when you read his his books, these pulp novels. Mm. They just had a real rhythmic pulse to them. Very spare short novels that, um, I'm a fan of, I'm a fan of a, a, as little as possible. You know, some of my favorite books are, you know, Steinbeck's The Red Pony, for mm-hmm. example, is a hundred pages. It's a perfect little book. Uh, Elmore Leonard's Valdez is coming. is a short book. It's not a word wasted in that book. So, um, that's what I'm trying to get to.
0: Now, uh, uh, when you're, uh, creating these, uh, the plots for your books, mm-hmm. you know, um, do you map it out much in advance or do you just like put, put you just put him in the situation, for example, uh, helping these two kids and, did, and then after that, did you figure out what was going to happen?
1: Yeah, I don't outline at all. Oh. I don't do any of that. Do you even think about it or? Well, yeah, I have to think about it, but I don't, but I don't, um, I don't pace around the house and think about it. I just keep writing, and I find it. You know, um, I had this situation where this was happening in Washington. Was that I found out that um, marijuana dealers were were had this me- had gone to this method where they were they were shipping uh, via FedEx. They were shipping their product to houses that were unoccupied during the day. They'd case the houses. They saw these people going to work every day. They knew that nobody would be home, and then via their laptop they tracked the the uh, progress of the package. They knew to the minute when it was getting delivered on the porch, as soon as a FedEx truck left the street, they'd go pick up their product and, and take it home, right? And it was—it seemed like it was foolproof, except other people found out about it and packages started to get missing. So I thought, well, this would be a good job for Lucas to get work for uh, a marijuana dealer who's up on charges. He's in the, in the D.C. jail awaiting trial, and he's hired to, to find these lost packages and that was the situation I had that's the only thing I knew and so I started writing and everything else just followed you know one thing that strikes me
0: about all your books is that often when we read about crime especially as works of crime fiction when we read about crime in other books or especially when we see it in in movies or on TV the crime almost always seems like a stunt almost or a special effect it's this kind of big glorious Sprint. It's a run. It's something like that. Big setup in heat. Um, you have crime really mapped out in a very, very different way. It's like a business for you. You have the. You get mm-hmm. behind the kind of. It's like an administrative uh, aspect to it that makes it. Again, that your sense of logic you bring to the to the criminal enterprise.
1: Yeah, and I and and honestly, I don't have a huge imagination. So a lot of the stuff that I get is from uh, I get a hold of court documents and. And actual cases where people were running these little businesses on the side, and uh, there was this one in Washington where was this guy and and uh, was doing a uh, arms business, illegal arms in the back of a detailing shop, car detailing shop. Well, that was enough to give me the whole, you know, that was the impetus for creating all these all these characters. We kind of work had this half-assed business out front, and then in the back selling selling guns, and also a playpen back there. You know, they had the Coke mirrors up on the wall, and they would bring girls back there and. Everything was self contained in this little garage. And, uh, and you can have a lot of fun with that, obviously. Um, one
0: of the things that's interesting, too, about uh, uh, Lucas as a, as a vet, and this is something I, I think that must have come from your experience, is that nobody, he, he never wants anybody to ask him the question. Mm-hmm. So, talk, did, did that question come up to you, or did you, how, how did you hear about that? Well, it's something that seems absolutely right on.
1: Well, of course, I grew up in a house, son of a Marine who fought in the Pacific. And okay. like many um, guys from my generation whose fathers weren't fought in World War II, almost all of us say the same thing. My father never talked about it. And, um, of course, a boy, the first thing he asked his father is, did you ever kill anybody, Dad? And uh, th- my father would answer, but... It never went any further than that, and I knew not to, and I, I knew not to uh, probe any deeper. And every veteran I've talked to, and when, when, when they say that's that's the question that comes up most when they meet somebody at a party or something like that, you know, after another guy's had a few beers or something, like, hey man, did you ever kill? And they don't, they don't, they don't feel they feel like that's sacred, you know. They'll talk about it with their friends, the guys they served with they're not gonna talk about it in a bar or with a stranger at a party, they just won't do that. And it makes a lot of sense, I think, because it's the ultimate act, right? Mm. To take somebody's life.
0: In uh, this novel, the scenes set in the, the, the vet bar are really, I think, affecting and strong. And they, um, they're just seem like everything else in this book. You're completely immersed in this world, and I'm guessing you must have spent some time in those bars.
1: Yeah, there's an American Legion bar up the street from where I live, and I go there and and I I go there and I have beers with the guys and stuff like that, and um, I can be a member because my father was you know a veteran, and it's what's fascinating is, of course, those guys can drink anywhere, and they you know I mean they could go into a bar and probably have people buy them beers all day long if they say uh you know I'm a veteran. It's just like when you go to the ball game and. And they have the veterans sitting in a section, and everybody stands up and applauds, and that's that's all well and good. But then you get to go home at night, and those guys have to go back to their lives, and so these what's what was interesting is that these a lot of these guys would rather drink in the American Legion bar than with with their brothers and sisters than they than they would in a regular in a regular bar, and consequently the places, um, it's the conversations are interesting but it's also a little bit sad because that's become a home for them for a lot of these guys
0: there's a real poignant feel to those scenes
1: yeah i mean i've met people that i met people in these in the bar there that had driven up from um, many states away just to come to this one bar because maybe they knew a guy there or something like that they had served with and and now this is a place they came to regularly from from, from far away and they have a little, um, like a, uh, you know, because of smoking laws now, even the veterans can't smoke in the bar. You have to go outside. <laughs> and, and it's like, oh, yeah, you're, you know, we'll send you off to war, but you can't smoke a cigarette in a bar. So they have these, um, kind of this backyard with a, grill, a barbecue and and uh, lights strung up, and that's where everybody's out there smoking. You know, if the bar looks empty, it's not really, it's not really empty. They're out back smoking.
0: I love your sense of of story in this book because there's so many stories that we get and and the way you uh, create stories. Um, And and it starts off really early because when um, uh, Spiro's getting the story of what happened uh, from the the, the lawyer, Mm -hmm. he immediately spots when the lawyer says, you know, they were listening to something. He immediately says, nope, nope, that wasn't really... Happening, and I think this is uh, something that in, informs uh, as a reader. I thought, boy, I bet that's exactly like this entire damn book.
1: Right, he was embellishing, and and uh, and Spiro uh, and and Spiro caught it. I mean, a lot of the a lot of the book. There's many scenes where people are telling stories, mm-hmm. and and somebody will jump in and correct them, or you know what I mean. It's it's just kind of funny because uh, as a storyteller, you're always looking for those kind of details mm-hmm. and and when somebody says you know yeah they were and they'd stolen these kids had stolen this car and and they were driving down the street with listening to wale with the windows down and he says, well, how do you you know no you went you went a bridge too far on that one how do you know what they were listening to you know
0: let's talk a little bit about that which i haven't read the story uh with uh in which you created a. Uh, Spiro's family because Spiro's mm-hmm. family is just fantastic. There, it's a really great, as um, aggregated, they're a great character. They're a great scene series of characters, and um, they really, uh, I think that family underpins, I think, a lot of the book. The dynamic in that family underpins the book, and, yeah, and it's very our,
1: important to, to Spiro and, and his bro- his relationship with his brother and his mom is very important to him. Um, you know, I just wanted to. I wanted to write about um, what that's like—the journey of adopting a family. My wife and I have a family similar to the one in the book. It's a uh, multiracial family mm-hmm. through adoption, and um, but I—I I wanted to leave a record of that, but also not in a, in a pious way. You know, sometimes people will come up to you and say. Uh, Oh, you must be a real good man. You know, you adopted a bunch of kids, and you, you feel like saying, "No, it doesn't mean I'm a good person." It's just a different way of having a family, but uh, it doesn't make me a good guy. And and so there was that aspect to get out, and also the humor in it, because mm-hmm. it is, it is sort of a funny process. It's not a, it's not anything sacred or anything like that. It is a, it's a business too, uh, and and I just want to humanize the whole thing rather than because people will look at a family like that from afar and they think it's not so much strange as, um, you know, holy or something. Mm -hmm. And really it's just like any other family. You know, you yell at at your adopted kids as loudly as you do your biological ones. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) Trust me.
0: I can imagine that would be the case. Um, You know, there's a great scene in there, too, where uh, uh, Leo, uh, Spiro's brother, is... um, teaching I think from an Elmore Leonard book Mm -hmm. and he's talking about how one of the characters is you know how the way the alcoholism is portrayed in the the Leonard book I think it's the Leonard book
1: it's Unknown Man 89 number 89 yeah which is one of his best books I think and and
0: then I think then we get this really great echo of it with uh, uh, Spiro's mother and I thought that was really nicely Mm -hmm. done it's beautifully uh, executed
1: yeah, and and that's another thing that's not resolved or anything. It's just sort of mentioned that mm-hmm. she's um, she's been drinking a little bit too much, and and uh, and he he and his brother have a conversation about. It. And his brother basically says, L- you know, leave her alone. She lost dad. She's trying to navigate all this stuff, and it's not as pat as you know. oh, we have to intervene, or you know, then then cut to the scene in the <laughs> in the AA meeting or something like that. It's just like, well, we'll see. We're going to see what happens there,
0: and, and I think that's uh, uh, again gives us uh, uh, gives readers uh, a good idea of your sense of story because there. Are, this book is satisf- super satisfying to read. Uh, it's so wonderful to to read the way it's all plotted and the way everything comes together. But what is also nice is what's not there and what doesn't come together. You mm-hmm. know the different things you, that you pick up, and I'm wondering, um, talk about like. Do you make a deliberate decisions to leave things out and not resolve things? Or does that flow from the writing and, and as you are creating the characters and say, no, he really wouldn't do that. We really would just not find that out yet.
1: That's, that, I think that is accurate right there. It's that, it's that it, it it has to be realistic, and um, there's, there's no reason to tie up these bows um, because that's not how life is usually life's a little bit messy. And, you know, maybe they will get tied up or referred to again up the road, but I wasn't ready to do that.
0: And and I like, too, the way you intermingle the crime aspect with the family aspect, Mm -hmm. with the everyday get up and eat breakfast and put on a new pair of socks aspect of life because they get balanced and as crime novels Crime is a little bit dialed back, and and in these books, and especially in this book.
1: Yeah, I would say so. I mean, to me, I'm just writing books that have these uh, elements of the crime novel in them, and and this one, and this one is actually more a straight-ahead crime novel than what I've done the last few books, and it it does without giving anything away. You know, it does deliver the goods as you get into it. Um, oh it delivers the goods yeah satisfying man right and i think also in a surprising way because Mm -hmm. you you don't really one of the reasons i didn't want you to know too much about what's going on in lucas's head is that his actions take everybody by surprise in the last few chapters of this book Mm -hmm. including the guys that are after him they underestimate this guy and you have to look back at what he's what he's been through and what he's done marines are not police marines are not peacekeepers they're they're trained to kill the enemy, and to protect their brothers and sisters. Those are the two things they're they're trained to do, mm-hmm. and those things that he's been trained for come out in the book. That's
0: a, and it's in a manner that I think is very uh, satisfying for us as readers. And now you have in any novel. Um, especially in crime novels, there's, you know, the antagonists. And you have a real talent for creating antagonists in this novel because we don't hate them. I mean, they are bad people doing, some of them are very, very bad people who do very, very bad things. But we love being around them, even uh, Earl and Wade. I mean, oh, my God, those guys, <laughs> they're, <laughs> they're terrible people, but they're very, very entertaining to be around. Um... It's so, or or Earl and Bernard. I'm sorry. It's right, Nanson White. White. <laughs> yep. Nanson <and> White. <laughs> yeah, those guys are a hoot to be around. Yeah, they're and, funny. And, yeah, and so you have an interesting sense of humor, and that that comes out a lot in dialogue.
1: Yeah, I because I just think you know, I don't. I'm I'll never write a a character like who's a total monster, like a, uh, you know, like a serial killer that you know. Uh, evil just is and it's unexplainable. I just don't, I don't believe that stuff. You know what I mean? I mean, they're, these guys are, these guys do awful things, but then when they're not, when they're not at work, you know, they're cutting on each other. They're saying funny things and, you know, they were, they were babies too. At one point in their lives, somebody, some mother held these awful guys in their, in, in her arms and, and rocked them, you know? So um, they didn't come out of this vacuum. They've got a, you know, so, yeah, I have a lot of fun with that stuff. I mean, I think uh, Ricardo Holly is a, is one of the worst guys I've ever written. I mean, he's just a vile human being, you know. But even he has some. Uh, it's the humor of them not knowing that they're stupid. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. At one point, it's you know they saying all this all this dumb stuff about women, and and then they go over to make make a drink, and so that they can be further philosophical. You know what I mean? <laughs>
0: Well, uh, their, their scenes are among the best in the book and, and um, one of the things that's interesting in this book too is that there's a theme of the relationships between fathers and sons and especially the impact of the absence of fathers and sometimes mm-hmm. the presence of fathers and what's nice is that there, there is absolutely no pat answer I mean obviously you think the absence of a father generally makes things worse but sometimes in in the presence of a father makes sense well yeah that
1: was that was me flipping the script a little bit you know because that's all you that's all you ever hear and generally it is true it's Mm -hmm. uh you know a boy needs a man around to make him whole but uh larry holly didn't need his father around i mean his father's just screwing him up and he every every time he it's like it's like somebody trying to it's like a skeleton trying to pull you into a grave you know what i mean (laughs) right every time he sees the guy and he would have been much better off without this guy in his life.
0: You've spent a lot of, you alluded to, and you have spent a lot of time working on TV, mm-hmm. and you've worked on, and I think that The, uh, the Wires is such a, a wonderful work. Uh, it's one of the few uh, television, things that you could watch in a movie format, whether you call it movie or TV. It's one of the few things that you can watch in that kind of format that I think offers some of the same pleasures of reading. And I think part of this is what you were alluding to. When we're reading, you actually have to do, your brain has to do some work.
1: Right, it's active.
0: It's active and that's what I think makes reading so pleasurable. Mm -hmm. It's just as rewarding. You you put the work into it, you get so much more out of it. It's like I could go back in this book and visit some of these scenes like as if there were vacation spots not that I want to take vacation in where somebody's you know being killed but it's still very vivid and i think that the the wire achieves that that same level of uh, vividness so talk about you know when you were um working this is a collaborative effort this is a polar opposite in many ways of working on a novel
1: yeah it was a, it was a great experience for me i i never um I have uh, had never been to a writing school, never did any graduate work or anything like that, never taken a writing class. And I always thought of what I was doing as uh, it's all intuitive. You know, you just sit down and write a book. It's magic or something like that. And it's, it is a lot of hard work, but somehow it always worked out, right? But then I got in a room with these guys and, um, uh, you know, David Simon, Ed Burns, Richard Price, Dennis Lehane. How did that happen? Well... David got me first um, before the first season. He hired me because he had read one of my books, mm-hmm. and then w- we started talking about well, who else can we bring in a no- other novelists? Because David didn't want um, he didn't want trained television writers because they've been trained really the wrong way mm-hmm. in a lot of cases. You know, um, you want to bring somebody in who doesn't necessarily. The format's not important. Mm-hmm. what's important is are you a good writer or not, and can you do characters and and good dialogue and can you make it cinematic you know can you connect it cinematically and um so we brought all these guys in, and they the everything got elevated It seemed like the the we're all very competitive <laughs> um you know, well, know that's that great. I
0: you and you a uh, a uh, a knockdown fight between uh George Pelicanos and Dennis Lehane. No,
1: it was more <laughs> right. Was more subtle than that. It was <laughs> it was sort of like we all knew that uh we all knew that each one of us wanted to write the best script of every season, you know. So you would you would actually try to what you try to do is get the best material, the the um and I had an advantage because I I would always get the penultimate episode. That was sort of my deal with David was uh, I get the episode where a lot of s- stuff happens, you know, mm-hmm. violent things and so on. You know what I'm talking <laughs> about. And but um, so being in a room with all these people made me see that there there is some there is a rhyme and reason to all this. It's not just instinctual, and it made me a better writer to to listen to other people talk about writing so much. Mm. And um, that was the that was a gift for me. To work on that show, and also to be involved with a show that um, is, it's you know, it's really good stuff. It's got a lot of resonance. It's going to be around for a long time. Mm.
0: And I think too that
1: uh, it, it, as
0: with your novels, it does the sa- a similar thing for uh, Baltimore in that it creates that world for us, really strong, in a world that we might not otherwise understand or know or you know, know about, because and this is something that's true I think of all your work the blue collar is that we do not you do not spend a lot of time with the rich and famous the super talented folks your folks are ordinary guys and that's and that must be does that provide challenges for you as a writer I mean to make it interesting
1: not to make it interesting because I'm real interested in those people Um, it's a challenge to get um, America to read or watch read a book or watch a show like that Mm -hmm. because they they are um most american literature most american pop culture is about people who win Mm. and these people in my books and in in the show they didn't they didn't win you know most of them didn't win but they did have these moments of um uh sort of inglorious redemption you know what i mean and and it's those moments of light that pop in that are really um kind of make it beautiful right but you know from the get-go that you know the guy in the wire is not going to end up being the mayor of Baltimore at the end <laughs> of the five year run <laughs> or, or he's not going to hit the number, like to, to put it even more elemental, he's not going to walk into the market and have the winning number and all of a sudden be a multimillionaire. It's just not going to happen. Mm-hmm. So because we're coming from a place of realism. so but what you're trying to do is show people that that these people are just as valid as anybody else that you, in your literature or your television. They're just as they're just as valid and just as interesting, and you should be looking at them too. Because that neighborhood that you drive through, that you lock all your doors, you know, people live there, and these are the people,
0: and you might see them if you look in the mirror. You probably do.
1: That's the that's the thing is, and um, we're not trying to. In my books and in television, I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to like change anything. I'm not trying to make it start a political movement or anything like that. But one thing I. would you would hope to do and and I think I have done it because people have come up to me occasionally is to inspire somebody who's a better person than I am to go out there and get involved in the form of you know I've had people come up to me and say I became a teacher in the pub, in in the public school system after watching the wire mm-hmm. you know and that's the biggest compliment that uh that I can get and,
0: and you speak to the state of the school system in in cut. Mm-hmm. And the schools you describe are, are pretty horrific. I mean,
1: well, except yeah, but I teach in that school in the book. You know, I'm not I'm not a, a full time teacher, but I do I do uh, uh, seminars. I teach. I've been teaching in the school for a long time. The Rock. Yeah.
0: Really. I, and I love the way that they refer to it as the Rock. It's right. Like a it,
1: it looks like well, all kids think of school as a prison, <laughs> but this one looks like it. <laughs> and and. Uh, and, but I make it clear in the book that, that that there's all sorts of kids coming out of this this school that that go on to good, really good, successful things. You I know?
0: remember that paragraph. It's yep. a great paragraph.
1: But you don't hear about them. What mm-hmm. you hear about is a kid that that gets involved in some dirt, you know, or you know, is dealing drugs or something like that. And then all these kids get painted like that. But that's not the case. It's despite the physical conditions of the school, and despite the neighborhoods that they have to walk through, and so on these kids I'm talking about heroically achieve, you know, and it's possible. Um, and the one thing you don't want to do is blame the teachers because there's a movement about that now. You know, oh, the Santa I... Union and, like, teachers are, the teachers are the problem. It's like, buddy, you go down there and, and teach school, you know, give up your $250,000 a year salary to go to that school and teach and, and get off your high horse and go down there and see what it's like. You know, oh, I I can't agree
0: more. It's it seems just a, a tragedy that we're blaming our teachers. Teachers should be making about a hundred thousand dollars a year minimum to do anything. Now, um, you're a good man with neighborhoods. Your your books are all set in you know are, are around where you live. You you could bicycle to most of the, the site of almost any of your books. Yeah, and you do. Um, uh, the wire was in Baltimore, and I'm guessing you got there and bicycled around those places as well.
1: Well, no, I was I commuted every day to Baltimore, mm-hmm. and um, and then you're you're driven to to the neighborhoods to the set, so you're you're on you're in the neighborhoods, mm-hmm. um, and and you're and you pretty much living there 12 to 14 hours a day. So we we shot in places that most Baltimoreans have never even been to. <laughs> now. Uh, as a writer, when
0: you're kind of creating these stories, you're working with actors who are embodying your characters, and I'm guessing there's a kind of a feedback loop for you there.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it gets easier. Um, um, when you've been on a show for a while, it gets much easier to write for the, for the characters because you get to know the actors. And, mm-hmm. and now uh, on Tremay, I've been working with a couple of these guys for 10 years now, Wendell Pierce, Clark Peters, they were both in The Wire. Mm-hmm. uh they're in treme and it's a joy to write for them because I know they're gonna not just not just bring bring you know their talent to it but they elevate your material i mean they make what you write better
0: well that's I think one of the things that's i think your kind of books the way you write lends itself very well to um being dramatized on t v because you take so much out of what you write in your books mm-hmm. they're so stripped back
1: yep like give somebody some room to work that's right that's right you're you're handing this this script over to a bunch of talented people and, mm-hmm. and and with the intention now now you do your thing you know so it's a direct it's not just a director and it's not just the actors i'm talking about the art director the hair and makeup costume department all these people talented people take this blueprint you give them and they they may, they bring it you know and it's, that's that's the cool thing about, to me, that's the coolest thing about working in that medium is that, is that all these talented folks that get together to sort of make this thing. You know, it's kind of like when I write a book, the, the great moment for me is when they ship me the books and I hold this thing in my hand that I, that I worked on, you know. And, but it's the same thing when I watch a television show and I see what all of us worked on to make that thing happen. And
0: and uh, it must be interesting in terms of uh storytelling to see your story kind of come alive because you're providing like the muscle and the skeleton. You must it's kind of uh Dr. Frankenstein.
1: <laughs> yeah, it is. It's great. It's it's um it's really gratifying to see the finished product.
0: Uh now in Tremay you're moved to yet another location. Mm-hmm. And I think there's one thing that is clear about all your work is um these are kind of like neighborhoods that are on the decline, or,
1: or you know, there, where things are rough. Well, they could use some help. And and with with Tremay, we're just trying to say this is this is New Orleans. This is why this city is worth saving. You know, don't turn your back on this place. They've been through some, uh, they've been through some very bad things. But um, there's beautiful people here, beautiful culture, and it's American. You know, so. And and it's also what I mean by that is it's, this is also America, so don't don't throw it away. And,
0: and that too, I I see that kind of there's an interesting kind of a similarity of contrast. But um, we know one side of New Orleans, the kind of party town, the glitzy, happy, yah yah yah. And the same thing with uh, Washington D.C. It's this kind of you know big parades on the promenade and mm-hmm. whatever. But what you show us is Another side of town where people are really struggling where things are really bad and life is not necessarily fantastically interesting. But the people in who live those lives are every bit as interesting as anybody who's in any parade anywhere.
1: Yeah. And they make it and they make it all work. I mean, there, there wouldn't be any parades without the working people of Washington, you know.
0: I've been speaking with George Pelicanos. His new novel is The Cut. Thank you for joining me, George. Thanks, Rick.